0: podcasts. Hi, I'm Adam Dudding and welcome to the long read from Stuff. Uh, I'm not Michael Wright, as you can probably tell, he's usually doing these bits, um, but he's not today because the story which you're about to hear is actually by Michael himself and he's going to read it, which would have made him introducing himself a bit weird, so here I am instead. So... Michael, welcome to The Long Read. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Uh, So this is a story about a disappearance, right? Who disappeared and when?
1: Yeah, so the story is called The Vanishing of Alan Woodford. Alan Woodford is the guy who disappeared. Uh, He went missing from his house in a small town in Southland called Mosbyn way back in 1985. The story is kind of interesting in that not just that he disappeared that as the title suggests, he just so utterly vanished. He got out of bed one night, went downstairs out of his house in this tiny town, walked outside and was never seen again. Didn't take anything with him, left no trace, nothing was ever found. And it was a strange case that I hadn't really heard of or knew anything about and thought it warranted you know, a deep dive as we're about to hear.
0: Yeah, but so how does that work? Why, why are you telling this story now? I mean, surely... Are you- 37 years have passed, this can't be the first time that there's been some media coverage about Alan Woodford.
1: Yeah, so weirdly, there had been precious little. When I looked back, there were a handful of stories done at the time saying Mospen Man missing. Um, there's only really been one other somewhat controversial media coverage of this case at the time, which we'll hear about in the story. But otherwise, the mainstream media has just passed this case by. And one, I thought that was interesting. And two, I'm from this part of the world, in Northern Southland, and I somewhat know a couple of the people in this story. So I always knew when I was a kid growing up that this had happened, that this man had disappeared in somewhat mysterious circumstances, but I never really knew anything about it. So yeah, that kind of prompted me to to where we are now.
0: So it's a small town story, right? Where everyone knows everyone, even the journalist who was, what, two when the events happened. Anyway, so here's Michael Wright reading his story, The Vanishing of Alan Woodford. There's a few swear words here and there, so you've been warned.
1: Anyone who knew Alan Woodford knew that he liked to keep his own company. He'd turn out to watch his sons play rugby and was good for a couple of beers in the pavilion afterwards, but that was about it. He rarely entered a pub or a shop or attended any social event at all. His family is pretty sure the only weddings he ever went to were those of his own children. Alan Woodford lived to be outdoors. Hunting was his passion. He worked for the Pest Destruction Board, shooting rabbits on farms around Mosspen in northern Southland and in his spare time hunted just about anything else. Deer were a favourite. Mosspen is known as the deer capital of New Zealand and Woodford spent untold hours in the hills around the town and the nearby Takatimu Mountains, stalking his favourite game. It was widely agreed that any stag that had the misfortune of coming into Woody's sights didn't stand a chance. Friends and family would later describe Woodford as solitary rather than antisocial. If you called at his home on Bedford Street, and plenty did, he was always welcoming. He was popular among the farmers on whose properties he worked and was always happy to yarn and have a laugh. Northern Southland's Barry Crump, as one put it. Woodford was no bush philosopher, but he did have a roguish charm. When a local farmer used the rugby ground opposite the Woodford home to prep his dog for dog trials, Woody fired off a few shots from a slug gun in their direction. There was no serious danger, But the pellets sent the poor collie haywire. The farmer couldn't work it out. Family, though, was at the centre of Woodford's social life. He and his wife, Jean, had eight children and, in time, 22 grandchildren. Woodford, nearing retirement, doted on all of them. So it was a shock to everybody when, in the early hours of April 20th, 1985, Alan Woodford disappeared without a trace some time before sunrise that day he got out of bed walked outside and vanished in 37 years there has been no sign of him his family has no idea what happened Alan Gordon Woodford was born in Dunedin in 1920. As a young man, he was a champion cyclist. A. Woodford has ridden very consistently all the season, the Evening Star observed in July 1939, and thoroughly deserves the Most Points medal. Around this time, he met Jean Stout, also from Dunedin, who was impressed by the young cyclist. Mum was a cycling groupie, I guess, their daughter Karen said, The couple married in 1940. In the early 1940s, Woodford was based at a military camp near Dunedin, preparing to head off for war, when the government called for men to stay home and work in essential services. Married and with two children already, Woodford volunteered. He spent the next 14 years working in a coal mine in Nightcaps in western Southland. The family moved to Mosbon in 1957. Woodford would spend the rest of his working life outside. The Woodfords settled into life in Mossman. They lived in a house supplied by the Pest Destruction Board and raised their family. Their seventh and eighth children arrived after the move. In 1977 the house burnt down in an accidental fire and they built a new home on the next door section, a quaint A-frame structure painted a shade of green best described as of its time. Next to the house was the garage, where Woodford kept his rifles, ammunition, tools and all the odds and ends an outdoorsman would accumulate. At the back of the property was a hut, where friends of his sons, now moving into adulthood, would often stay, usually before a hunting trip of their own. On the next-door section, owned by the Pest Destruction Board, was another shed, where Woodford parked his truck. As adults, several of the Woodford children built their own lives in Mossburn. This required their father to expand his social network, if only a little. Along with the rugby watching, he now had to travel across town to see them. On the evening of April 19th, 1985, a Friday, that was exactly what he did. On a pushbike, the former champion cyclist, now 65 years old, called at three of his son's homes. The conversation was, as usual, mostly about hunting. Heading out tomorrow? Where? Who with? His last stop that night was to see his son Mark, who only lived a few doors down on Bedford Street. He left about 9.30pm. Woodford himself had no hunting plans for Saturday. He hoped to do some work on the conservatory in the house, but he was also expecting two of his granddaughters from out of town. He was excited about the visit and made a point on Friday of getting bikes out of the garage for them to ride. The girl's mother, Karen, was Woodford's daughter. She had married a farmer from a different part of Southland and her husband's rugby team was playing Tiano that day. The plan was to drop the girls in Mossman en route to Tiano and collect them after the game. The last person to see Alan Woodford alive was his wife, Jean. They watched TV together until about 11pm, then went to bed. They slept in single beds in an upstairs bedroom, and during the night Jean heard her husband get up and then return to his bed. She presumed he'd gone to the toilet. She heard nothing else before she woke at about eight o'clock the next morning and found her husband was gone. At first, Jean, a placid woman, wasn't worried. No one was. Woodford's truck was in the driveway. His guns were in place, as were his boots and all his outdoor gear, so wherever he was, it couldn't be far. He hadn't even taken his tea-cosy hat, which he wore everywhere. Kieran and the girls arrived in Mossburn about 10am. Your father's missing, Jean said to Kieran, but the mood was still more puzzlement than panic. Kieran drafted in Mark, and together they searched the paddocks behind Bedford Street. At worst, they thought he might have walked away from the house and had a heart attack, or fallen into a ditch and broken his leg. There was no sign. They canvassed all the neighbours. Nothing. Even then, nobody was terribly concerned. Woodford was a family man with everything to live for. He had a wife, a retirement to enjoy, and deer to shoot. The idea that he would vanish without a trace was so alien to the family that none of them seriously entertained it. Kieran left for rugby in Townell. When the match was over, she called home and learned that in the meantime, Jean had rung Woodford's friend. Jack Orlusky, a police officer who lived in Invercargill. Jean only wanted to ask if he knew where Woodford might be, but when Orlusky heard that his friend was missing, he was concerned enough to drive straight to Mossman and help organise a search. By now, it was mid-afternoon. People were starting to worry. Kieran caught a ride back to Mosman. Orluski and Lumsden cop Constable Bob Gibson had taken charge. With the help of some locals, they scoured the town and several kilometres in every direction. It turned up nothing. The next five or six days are just a blur, Karen says. We went out searching every day, just kind of in a limbo of looking, 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 everywhere we could possibly think of. The search for Alan Woodford began in earnest the day after he disappeared. It would be coordinated by O'Lusky and at least one other officer from Invercargill. That day, Sunday, April 21st, a hundred people assembled at Mossman Fire Station. Volunteer Fire Chief Jim Guyton spent the previous evening ringing around the district for volunteers. Farmers and station owners sent as many men and vehicles as they could. They came from everywhere, Guyton says. The police were blown away that we got that many people overnight. That's the beauty of a small district. And Woody was known. Shit, everybody knew him. Search parties were dispatched, including one by air. The town was divided into five sections and the surrounding countryside into 14. Road verges were a priority in case Woodford had gone for an early morning walk and been hit by a car. After that, instructions were to visit every house, speak to all occupants, and search every building, hedgerow, and shelter belt in the area. As much as possible, farmers and farm workers were allocated their own properties, or other land they knew well. Police involvement only lasted the weekend, but the volunteers kept it up for another week. Some areas, searchers paid particular attention to. One was a place called Waterloo, about 10 kilometres west of Mossbon, in the Takatimu Mountains. Woodford knew the area well. He had a hut at Waterloo that he used for hunting. But there was no sign of him at the hut, and no sign anyone had been there. Another area of interest was Black Ridge a densely wooded outcrop in the southern foothills of the Eyre Mountains, just north of Mossman. It was another area Woodford knew, but perhaps more importantly, it was the closest bush you could walk to from town. One of the enduring puzzles of Woodford's disappearance is how he managed to so utterly vanish. It's one thing to disappear if you live in a city, with an entire urban landscape on your doorstep and hours or even days before your absence is noted. It's another to do it in a tiny rural town in the middle of the night and take nothing with you. Searchers surmised that if Woodford had managed the latter, he might have taken the shortest route into the bush. Shortest route, however, was a relative term. Mossbin sits on an alluvial plain next to the Oriti River, which runs from mountains near Queenstown to Invercargill on the south coast. The flat farmland surrounding the town is crisscrossed by fences. Black Ridge is about 5 kilometres away, and Waterloo about 10 kilometres, but only if a traveller is determined to move in a straight line, which would mean crossing paddock after paddock and hurdling countless obstacles. Bloody ditches and electric fences, Woodford's son Mark says. You'd have a bastard of a time. Both places were more easily accessible by road, which almost doubled the distance and increased the likelihood of being seen. Waterloo was probably a six-hour walk from Mossburn. If Woodford had managed that, he would have made at least part of the journey in daylight. It didn't make sense to us his daughter Karen says. Why the hell he'd walk when he could have taken his Land Rover is really weird. The organised search lasted about a week, But the family continued looking for several more. In a way, they never stopped. We hunted and hunted and hunted, Woodford's son Donald says. It drives you mad. You're always looking, says Mark, but you give up the initial search because you don't know where the hell to go. They were at a loss. Woodford's three-year-old grandson, Sam, used to spend all his time with his grandfather following him around as he did chores. Everyone was telling him Grandad was lost, so Sam figured he just had to wait until Grandad was found. Every day, he sat in a chair, waiting. He didn't know how to play otherwise. About this time, the family says, two police officers paid them a visit. Bev Woodford, Mark's wife, remembers they had a single purpose, Close the case as a suicide. They said, Look, we're terribly sorry about your father and everything, but the mind just snaps and they just go away. Sitting in the lounge of Mark and Bev Woodford's home in Bedford Street, the same one to which Alan Woodford made his final visit the night before he disappeared, three of Woodford's eight children consider their father's fate. From a framed black-and-white photograph on the wall above the TV, the protagonist surveys the scene. Woodford, sitting on the porch at Waterloo Hut, wearing a wide-brimmed hat instead of his usual tea cosy. A Jack Russell, Utah, is on his lap. The three children, Donald, third-oldest, Mark, sixth-oldest, and Kieran, seventh, agree there are four possible explanations for what happened to their father 36 and a half years ago. Three, really, once they discard, to considerable laughter, the idea that he abandoned his family to start a new life, perhaps shacking up with another woman and living out his days on the Gold Coast. He'd barely been out of Southland or Otago, Kieran says. One of the more plausible theories is dispatched almost as quickly, that Woodford went walking and suffered some misadventure, a heart attack a fall, or a hit-and-run. If this happened, it would likely have been close to Bedford Street, and even if it wasn't, wouldn't have been somewhere so out of the way that no trace of him could ever be found. If he'd gone off somewhere, Donald concludes, we would have found him. That leaves two scenarios. One is suicide, which the siblings agree is possible. I wouldn't have thought in a million years he'd do anything like that, Karen says. But you don't know what's in someone's head. But none of them really believe it. They think the last remaining theory is the most likely. They think their father was murdered. A week before he vanished, Woodford reported to his boss at the Pest Destruction Board, John Turner that he was losing petrol out of his truck. Someone was apparently sneaking onto the property at night and siphoning the fuel straight out of the tank. Turner suggested Woodford lock the vehicle, a novelty in the country, or better yet, park it in the shed. It's not clear if the truck was locked the night Woodford disappeared, but he had parked it in the shed. Turner was Woodford's friend as well as his boss. A week before he went missing, they'd gone rabbit shooting together on Turner's farm. When Turner heard what happened, his first instinct was foul play. He maintains that today. I think someone's gone round to pick up some petrol or something, he says, and I think at least a couple of people knocked him on the head. Turner is adamant on this point, that more than one person was responsible because someone would have had to catch his friend by surprise. Even at 65, Turner says, Woodford was stronger and more agile than men decades younger. He recalls one feat from that last rabbit shoot when he was driving his truck through a creek. There was a heap of young parry flappers, Paradise Ducks, on it, Turner says. And Woody said, Don't stop, keep going, now stop and he went bang, and he got the whole five or six in one shot. He threw the gun on the floor of the Land Rover, jumped out with his gumboots on, ran down to the river, and collected the lot of them. If you asked your kid to do that, they'd say, I don't know if I can. He was as fit as buggery. That the police never seriously entertained the homicide theory is a sore point for Woodford's family. There was no scene investigation at Bedford Street the day of the disappearance, No tracking dogs, no witness statements. Outside of the organised search, the only contact they had with police at the time was the detective's visit to declare the matter a suicide. Didn't that piss them off? Shit yeah, says Mark. At the time, we couldn't friggin' believe it, but that was it. They never came round to the house and checked things out there. No police asked us anything at all. The family believe there was one reason for this. The sway of Woodford's friend, Jack Orlusky Orlusky, who died in 1989, was the cop who had helped organise the initial search, but he came to wield far more influence in the case. That first weekend, he revealed that his friend had confided in him. If Woodford ever decided to take his own life, he would do so privately. He has said to me, Orlusky wrote in a later police report, that if he ever wandered off to die like an old elephant, then no one will ever find him. He went on to observe Woodford had exhibited occasional signs of depression for about six months before his disappearance and had been deeply troubled by the plight of two of his older brothers, both terminally ill. I feel that the subject, Orlusky wrote, cannot face the prospect of himself one day turning out like these two family members. I think that he has gone to some secret place, probably not too far from home, and there committed suicide. This, Woodford's family believe, was the sole reason police settled on the suicide theory. In a case with such a dearth of evidence pointing to anything, the statements of Orlusky, a police officer, and one of Woodford's closest friends Had a beguiling effect. Dad's biggest problem, Donald Woodford says, was he was mates with this cop and the cops did nothing. That summed it right up. No one in the family had heard the old elephant theory or knew of any health problems, but they concede it wouldn't have been unheard of for a man of Woodford's generation to disclose such things only to a mate. The sick brother's element they have more trouble with. Woodford was second youngest in a family of 13 children and both terminally ill siblings were in their late 70s. Woodford was fit and only 65. This year, all six of his surviving children will be older than he was when he disappeared. Alan Woodford was officially declared dead in 1992. Under New Zealand law, a missing person can be presumed dead after they have not been heard from for seven years. The coroner listed the cause of death as unknown. About this time, as part of the coronial process, the family gathered in the A-frame house Woodford disappeared from for another meeting with a police officer. It did not go well. The officer had nothing to add, and the meeting was little more than a courtesy. Kieran lost her temper. I said to him, you've got no records, no investigation of any other sort. The police just assumed that he'd gone and done away with himself. You never looked at any other possibility. And now you're telling me it's case closed? I said, how can it be closed when there's no resolution? It's like Dad didn't even exist.
0: You can't imagine how horrible it is to take the stand and be treated like you're the one in the wrong, especially in a sexual crime situation. From Bird of Paradise for Stuff, this is Tell Me About It. Going behind the scenes of our journalism to the voices of real people whose stories make the news. You're just so out of control of it, you know. I felt like a ghost of the system a lot of the time. It's like, no, why can no one actually see who I am? With me, Kirsty Johnston, Michelle Duff, and our producer, Noelle McCarthy. Can I ask you a question that makes it seem quite basic. Has it all been worth it? From a justice point of view, I would still struggle to say that right now, but it's still raw. Tell me about it It was made possible by New Zealand On Air. Subscribe and review us please on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Sometime in the late 1990s, Detective Senior Sergeant Brian Hewitt went looking for the police file on Alan Woodford. DNA was emerging as a crime-fighting tool, and Hewitt, head of the Invercargill CIB, wanted a sample attached to missing persons files for future reference. But on the Woodford case, he came up short. He couldn't even find a file. Hewitt was pained. Though he joined the Invercargill police in 1986, a year after Woodford disappeared, he had grown up in Mossburn and knew the missing man well. He was a nice fella, but he was a tough old fella, Hewitt says. When we were kids around Mospin, we didn't want to upset Woody. Today, police retain a thick file on the Woodford case. But almost none of it is what Hewitt was looking for back in the 90s. That file was lost. This one exists as a result of Woodford's case appearing on the TV show Sensing Murder in 2010. Sensing Murder was a popular, if dubious, staple of reality TV in the mid-2000s. Each episode was built around a cold case, usually a murder, and told the backstory of the crime and investigation before inviting two psychics to make pronouncements about what might have happened. Donald's son, Glenn, contacted the producers about his missing grandfather. I didn't have any faith in that program, Karen says. They came and talked with us before the psychics came to see us. If they just brought the psychics up to meet us cold turkey, it probably would have been a completely different story. As it happened, both psychics on the show were drawn to the family's homicide theory, that Woodford went outside to confront someone and was attacked. Sensing murder wasn't the family's first encounter with clairvoyance. One day, only weeks after the disappearance, Bev Woodford arrived home with a friend to see a man staggering up the road with a divining rod. He had a pair of Woodford's underpants slung over one arm and an electric razor over the other, presumably to help him commune with the missing man's spirit. We just lost the plot laughing, Bev says. One woman traced Woodford to Black Ridge, where she identified his reincarnation as in the form of a bumblebee. A few years ago, another psychic approached the family. Adamant Woodford's body was at Waterloo, near his hut in the Takatimus. Mark and Donald took him out there. He got out of his truck, Mark says. He was actually sweating. Sweat was coming off his face. He said, he's down there. I had a broken arm at the time. Donald started digging. The psychic was friggin' sure we were going to find him. Donnie dug for bloody bastard hours. There were some bloody good fishing worms there. I've been meaning to go back and get some. Donald is more circumspect. You clutch at straws, he says. They say they can do something, you give it a try. Despite its obvious flaws, sensing murder generated a flurry of tips on the case. Police granted stuff access to the file. The entries start in 2010, shortly after the episode first aired, and continue through to 2017. Apologies for dumping this on you, one officer wrote in an email that accompanied a lengthy statement from 2016. I'm assuming sensing murder has been on TV again. Another warned before a rerun, that the telephonists at Invercargill Police Station should brace for a deluge of calls and any officers with light caseloads should prepare to be busy. It really is a special time in one's career, the officer wrote, when they get to contact all these people that ring in after sensing murder. Police could be forgiven their cynicism. The tips are a mix of the reasonable and the decidedly unreasonable. On Saturday morning, I made a pendulum, one begins, and run it all over the photo. The reaction I got was amazing. The pendulum took off spinning. I believe Alan Woodford is buried. Many, however, focus on one man. We'll call him X. He lived in the Mossman area and had a lengthy criminal record. The northern Southland rumour mill long held him responsible for Woodford's disappearance and, sensing murder reruns, only stoked the gossip. Both of the psychics on the show mentioned him by name, but the words were bleeped for broadcast. I'm friends with the ex-wife and the son of that person, Bev Woodford says, and when something like this happens, they ring me, even though no one's mentioned names. So-and-so's been going on on social media about X. Without fail, Bev says, the family members swear to her that X didn't do it. One tip came from someone with gang links in Southland, who said X accused him of owing money. He made the comment to me that if I don't pay, that I will end up like Woody. Even today, and I don't live in the South anymore, I'm still shit scared. Another was from someone who attended a party X hosted, It was late at night during one of these parties when a guy who I hadn't met before was there. He began to make jokes about cracking a woody. He was pretty well pissed and stoned. Every time he tried to carry on from this, X would shut him up or threaten to shut him up permanently. X did not respond to a request to comment for this story, but he did speak to private investigators hired by Sensing Murder in 2009. Notes from the conversation are included in the police file. There had been all sorts of theories about Alan's disappearance, Eck said. Many are just not plausible. One is that he caught someone stealing and was dealt to by that person. I think the problem with that is that the town was small, and if someone had done it, the town would have heard. He denied having anything to do with the disappearance. Brian Hewitt retired from the police in 2006, not long after he led the investigation that cracked another cold case, the 1987 murder of Arrowtown woman Maureen McKinnell. He doubts X was involved in Woodford's disappearance. He was a local troublemaker and he was a tough nut, Hewitt said. But I don't see it. Hewitt once even asked X about it directly. He said, I was fair game. I was a name in the district. Anything that happened, they blamed me. The police file has one final tantalising lead, not linked to X. It's right at the back of the folder, and again came from the sensing murder investigators. They spoke to another man who went hunting around Waterloo a few weeks before Woodford disappeared. One afternoon, the man and a friend were walking up a valley when, to their surprise, they came across Woodford and Orlusky. What caught both of our attention was a pack horse, the hunter said. It was loaded to the maximum with what I could best describe was a load about the size of an elephant saddle. It covered the horse's back and was packed high. Whatever it was, it had to be light, as it was a huge load for a horse. If I had to guess what was under the cover, I would say some sort of vegetation, either cannabis or ferns for the florist. I did not expect the reaction we got. Alan was aggravated and did all the talking. He just went off at us. He wanted to know, what the fuck in hell are you doing here? I got the impression he did not want to see us. There is no other mention of stripping cannabis plots in the police file. Over the years, the notion has crept into versions of the homicide theory as a possible motive. Some growers were getting back at Woody for raiding their stash by stealing his petrol, and things got out of hand. But, like almost everything else about the disappearance... There is no hard evidence to support it. In official circles, Alan Woodford's disappearance defies categorisation. Along with the coroner's unknown cause of death finding, the police register of missing persons, which includes suspected suicide among its classifications, lists Woodford's case as unexplained. The equivocations are fitting. Brian Hewitt concedes that, even by missing person standards, Woodford's case is strange. Almost nobody disappears, leaving so little evidence to explain why. It's odd, Hewitt says. It's odd for a male to go missing in those circumstances. About three weeks after Woodford disappeared, his family resigned themselves to the fact he wasn't coming home but it took much longer to accept that they would likely never know what happened to him. It probably took about 20 years for that to sink in, his daughter Karen says. You keep thinking one day, one day someone will come across something, a skeleton or a shallow grave, or someone would come up with some information that they knew of somebody who had done something and point us to where a body could be located. We just hoped and hoped and hoped that one day we'd get a resolution. The case remains open. Southern District Investigations Manager Detective Inspector Shona Lowe said, If there's any further things for us to look at, we will obviously look at that. Few of us care to admit that a loved one may be suicidal... We mistake our dread of such an eventuality for the unlikelihood of it happening. Alan Woodford's family is an exception. They're prepared to accept this may be what happened, but at the same time, they're drawn to the homicide theory. 37 years after one of these realities likely claimed their husband, father and grandfather, the uncertainty of which one is worst of all. Not knowing is extremely difficult, Karen says. Not having him in our lives is the hardest part, but not knowing is the cruelest thing you could possibly imagine. I don't like the word closure because there's never closure. You've just got to learn to live with the situation, but not knowing what you've got to learn to live with is difficult. I've lost a brother in a car accident, I've lost my sister to cancer, and now I've lost my mother to old age. You don't ever get over things like that. You just learn to live with them. But not knowing is really difficult because you can't compartmentalize it in your life. Because there's always that tiny little niggle. Did he do this to us deliberately, or was he taken from us? And there's no answer to those questions. So because there's no answer, you're always, always, always asking, what the hell happened? Where is he?
0: was the vanishing of alan woodford on the long read from stuff written and read by michael wright this episode was edited by jack price this story and others like it are all available at stuff.co.nz slash the long read as well as all the usual podcast platforms apple spotify all that if you like what you heard please give us a five star rating and a review it helps other listeners find us thanks for listening